First of all, a warm welcome to this week's UBS live stream. This is the place where we're trying to tackle what we think are the most important questions for global uh, investors. In this week's uh, section, we're trying to focus in on this reversion in trends we're seeing in financial markets at the moment, which are driven by this acceleration in, in vaccinations and also what we think is some degree of normalization that is happening, particularly now in the second quarter of global economies, but also of consumer behavior. In financial markets, we have seen that some of the laggards of last year, some of the cyclical sectors like energy and financials have made a quite significant comeback and other sectors like IT that were certainly not only performing well last year but over the last decade has been suffering from some of these most recent trends which has been driven by the move up in, in yields and that came from a particularly the FOMC meeting we had uh, last week where the US Central Bank made it clear that they're not planning to stop at least for now the rise that we're seeing in, in longer end of, of the yield curve. So in this live stream today, I'm joined by what we think is the cavalcade of some of the best CIO experts on exactly these uh, topics. And we, of course, ask you, dear client and participants, to be as active as you would like to. And therefore, we have placed a little button on the website here uh, towards the bottom of it, where you can ask questions that we will try to address towards the end of this uh, live stream here. But we're planning to kick it off with a focus on fixed uh, income, what we have seen from the beginning of the year where the U.S. 10-year yields were uh, below 1%, today is above 1.6%, so a quite sharp move up in the long end of the, the curve. And we have none else than Fred Mellers with us today, who has our fixed income and credit strategy to try to make some degree of, of sense for all of this for us. So maybe, Fred, if I, if I first turn it over to you, what is behind this move in, in yields, in particular in the U.S., and what is our outlook for yields going forward? Great. Thanks, Mark, and thanks for having me on today. So no doubt there's been enormous focus, particularly over the last month, over these uh, pretty large substantial moves in long-term interest rates. Um, there's been a lot of explanations given as to why uh, long-term interest rates have backed up, but I think the, the easy answer to the question is essentially about a month ago, we saw the U.S. sign off on a very large fiscal package. I think before uh, that point, there was no expect there was an expectation that the more fiscal stimulus, but the the size of the stimulus that the U.S. economy is currently getting is much bigger than most expectations. In conjunction with that, as you mentioned, uh, the speed of vaccinations in the U.S. and the efficacy around the vaccines has given quite a lot of optimism uh, to, to the economic outlook. So, so with that, if we look at my first slide, you can see that since the pandemic, uh, and if we just focus on the dark line here, uh, nominal interest rates have been quite range bound. But about a month ago, as I said, with the fiscal stimulus and the rollout of the vaccine, um, interest rates have started to move aggressively higher. And with that, you've had a real shakeup across all fixed income assets. There have been other uh, sort of reasons given as to this backup of interest rates, uh, talk of foreign banks selling U.S. treasuries. Uh, there's looming bank capital regulatory changes coming in the U.S. But I think it's ultimately about the economic outlook and the expectation that this year in the U.S. we could potentially see 6 to 7% real GDP growth, which is, is quite significant. Um, what we also do is we, we sort of look at 
uh, short-term policy rate expectations, and this is related to the Fed, because essentially a long-term interest rate is a expectation of forward short-term rates. And as you can see, in the last month, uh, the market has moved from essentially pricing no liftoff from the Fed, so no rate hikes, to looking for one full hike in 2022 and two full hikes in 2023. So the market has moved a lot in a very short period of time in expectation of higher growth and higher inflation. Maybe let me pick up on this, that last one there, Fred, around inflation, because at the moment, I mean, I guess most of us are going to be looking into this kind of economic growth rate that will just be mind-boggling relative to anything, at least, that I remember seeing on the, on the, on the screens here. Um, there's also been some critics out there that are essentially saying, why put more fuel to the fire in a way? And, and, and one very vocal critic has been former U.S. Treasury Secretary Larry Summers, who's out both calling the Fed to some degree uh, irresponsible, but also saying that there might be an inflation risk that we're underestimating here. What is your take on this? Yeah, sure. So, so the debate around inflation versus deflation, I think, is quite polarized at the moment. There's very smart people like Larry Summers, as you mentioned, who are taking a particular side to that debate. But I think at the moment, it is really too early to tell. I know that's kind of an easy answer, but at the moment, we're still working through the scarring from the pandemic. We don't truly know exactly how that has shaped household and corporate behavior. We also know that over the last decades, we've had these really powerful disinflationary forces that have kept inflation low and kept interest rates low. So at the moment, I think it's, it's far too early to really take a strong high conviction view as to whether we're about to embark on structurally higher inflation. I guess what we do know, and this is to uh, my third slide, is that in the very short term, there is going to be a cyclical pickup of inflation. And that's because of the reasons I pointed to earlier, the fiscal stimulus, but also there's been a lot of pent up demand built up through the pandemic and savings are quite high. So the market at the moment is expecting a very sharp pickup of inflation, as you can see here, and the Fed is expecting that as well. But then beyond that, the market essentially goes back to pricing something along the lines of 2% long-term uh, inflation in line with what the Fed is telling us as well. So the view at the moment from the Fed and from the market is that there'll be a short-term pickup of inflation, but it will be transitory, and then it'll eventually settle back down to a, a more sort of stable level of 2%. Fred, I guess it goes for most of uh, not only myself, yourself, but, but people on the, on the call here. We've been kind of observing uh, interest rates, long-end yields be moving lower and lower and lower. And I think a lot of people are kind of questioning with these higher growth rates that we're projecting over the next couple of years, uh, potential for elevated inflation. Is this the end for lower for longer environment that we've been getting so used to and I guess have been enjoyed uh, as not only fixed income, but also equity investors? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a little bit too early to call the end of lower for longer. Um, it, we heard from the Fed last week, and and they essentially told us that they're they're willing to be patient. I think a lot of central banks and their policies today have been shaped 
from the global financial crisis. So I won't go back to the, the history books too much there, but essentially they were heavily criticised for withdrawing stimulus far too early and preventing a sustainable recovery and a sustainable normalisation of inflation. So this time they're willing to let economies run a little bit hot, hotter for a lot longer, so keeping policy far more accommodative than what they have typically done in previous cycles. So I think at this stage it's too early to, to sound the bell and say lower for longer is over, but moving through this recovery, we're constantly going to get challenged and we're going to have to, as I said earlier, talk about whether inflation is moving structurally higher or we're moving back to something more what we've seen historically. But at this stage, I think the lower for longer story is with us for, for some time um, at least. Very good, Fred. Let's, uh, let's shift tech here and move a little bit over to the equity side of the uh, equation because I guess something that became a bit of a kind of common knowledge among investors was not only that there was no great alternative to equities, but also in many ways that the lower yield and rates environment generally provided a boost for equity markets that had become attractive on any sort of view around the equity risk premium valuation and, and so forth. And uh, to debate this point a, a bit more into details, uh, I'm joined here by our head of U.S. equities, which is uh, David uh, Lefkowitz. So, so so maybe, David, if we kick it off on this whole debate around the equity risk premium and the attractiveness of equities, which was uh, at least partly driven by, by lower yields, uh, is this story gone or where are we standing now as equity investors? Yeah, thanks, Mark, and thanks for having me. And welcome, everybody, to the Live stream. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a really important question, Mark, and, uh, but I think there's a couple of things to bear in mind, right? So if we, if we think about valuations for equities, uh, the most common way that people look at valuations are some, something called the price earnings ratio. Uh, the, but valuations, uh, if you look at it from that perspective, interest rates or the discount rate is a key component, but so is the growth rate. Right. So there are there are really two key variables that drive valuations, the, the interest rate or the, or the discount rate and, and also the growth, as I, I'm just repeating myself. But, you know, the point here is that as interest rates have been rising, there is the 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 market is becoming to appreciate that growth is going to be picking up. Fred talked about we're going to see some pretty rapid GDP growth this year. Uh, the, the fastest we've seen in, in decades. And I think the fact that interest rates are rising to reflect that better growth outlook uh, also has implications for valuations. It means that valuations can remain uh, relatively stable given even though that interest rates are moving up. Now, now that all being said, at, at a market level, you know, higher interest rates could be a little bit of a modest headwind. In fact, we've already seen uh, interest rate or, or PE ratios uh, declined by about 4% this year. So I, I think, you know, that's the order of magnitude we're, we're talking about. Maybe there's a little bit more of, of that. That's pretty normal in the beginning of an economic cycle. Uh, usually stock prices are ahead of earnings. So as earnings sort of catch up to where the, the market is, you see a little bit of valuation compression. But, you know, typically you don't see a tremendous amount of valuation compression in the stock market unless there is some problem, right? Unless, unless the market is worried about a recession or a growth scare and just, you know, given, uh, given how much fiscal stimulus is in the pipeline, how much excess savings are on consumer balance sheets, nearly $2 trillion, you know, it's very unlikely we're going to have any kind of growth scare anytime soon. So, 
so I don't think the, the valuation risks are, are terribly high. Now, you mentioned, I want to address the, your specific question, Mark, on the equity risk premium. The slide we're showing here is shows one way of looking at the equity risk premium. It is the earnings yield on the market minus the 10-year treasury yield. So what is the premium in terms of a yield advantage that stocks are, are generating over bonds? And you can see here, it still is pretty high from a long-term perspective. Now, it's, it's, it's about at the lower end of the, the range that we've seen since the financial crisis, but our work suggests that it can go lower uh, if inflation expectations continue to rise. So in other words, stocks can maintain their current valuations if interest rates rise uh, because, uh, because A, a they're, not, uh, they're not high, you know, they're not near the long-term average, but also B, if it's driven by higher inflation expectations, that tends to drive a compression in, in this, in this uh, metric that we're showing here on the chart. Thanks, David. Maybe to zoom in on a little bit of some of these cyclical sectors, because it's probably not unusual that we've seen cyclical sectors, call it the energy, financials, more the value type uh, stocks out there. They have done well in, in an environment where we are looking forward to these very explosive uh, economic growth rates. So, so talk us a little bit through uh, if this kind of cyclical market can continue to perform well or if it's been running too, too far already. Yeah, so I would say the short answer, Mark, is that we, we think yes. We think that cyclicals are still the place to be as we look out over the next six to 12 months. And, and there are two components of that. On the next slide here, um, I, I want to show a, a little bit of, a, of an analysis around the relationship between valuations, which we were just talking about. Um, before, we were talking about valuations for the overall market. Here, I'm going to zero in on valuations for growth stocks in particular. And uh, what this chart shows is that there's been a, a tighter relationship between the valuations on high growth stocks and uh, what we call real interest rates, so an inflation-adjusted interest rates. And as interest rates uh, in inflation-adjusted terms start to rise, as they have been over the last, you know, last several months, then we have seen some valuation compression for those high-growth companies. And, and I think that's going to likely still gonna continue to be a bit of a headwind for these high-growth companies. Now, look, they're going to put up some very good earnings growth, uh, so I don't think the downside risk is is huge here, but but if interest rates continue to rise, that's going to be a headwind for those secular growers. Now, on the flip side, uh, we were talking a lot about economic growth and, and things like that. When economic growth is strong, sort of by definition, it's going to be those cyclical uh, parts of the market, those companies that are more tied to the economy. You mentioned energy, financials, those types of companies that are going to get the biggest benefit. So, yeah, I think those companies are going to be able to generate faster earnings growth this year and potentially even faster earnings growth next year uh, relative to some of the secular growth companies. So, so that's a big change in the environment. The problem that cyclicals have had over the last few years has been very modest earnings growth. That seems to be shifting. And that could be a very powerful driver of returns over the next, at, at least the next year or so. 
Thanks a lot, David. I think with, with talking about growth stocks, I guess there's no way of getting around the technology sector, which has been not only driving the past year, but the past decade in terms of, of returns. And, and for that discussion, I'm joined here by Laura Kane, who joined, who runs our U.S. Uh, thematic uh, research. So, Laura, um, on the back of what, what David is, is, is talking about, what do you see as kind of the key dynamics in the tech sector over the past few months? Hi, Mark. Thanks so much for the question. So I would say that after a standout year in 2020, tech stocks have come under pressure in recent months. And there's really two key drivers behind this shift that we're seeing in performance. So the first is that as the economic recovery accelerates, the stay-at-home trade, which favored tech and Internet companies, has given way to the reflation trade, which is concentrated in more cyclical pockets of the market. Um, as David just described. So in other words, sectors that are more leveraged to economic activity simply look better positioned than the tech sector right now, which is more secularly driven. The second major driver is we've moved from an environment of low and falling bond yields to one where we have seen U.S. 10-year Treasury yields rise by more than 75 basis points in just three months. Now, recall last year, valuations for secular growth companies got the biggest boost from the decline in interest rates. This is because investors have been treating these companies as long-duration assets, so similar to long-dated bonds. So now, as yields have risen, tech shares have come under pressure, and we expect that tech shares will remain at a disadvantage as yields stay on an upward path. Now, that said, the performance has not been uniform across the entire technology segment, uh, as you can see on the slide, recent underperformance has been the most severe among the early stage companies that have yet to generate uh, significant profits. And given the long duration of their potential future cash flows, their valuations have been most affected by the move that we've seen in yields. In contrast, more established mega cap tech companies have held up comparably better recently. Um, finally, I would also note that more cyclical parts of tech, like semiconductors, have had been less impacted by the move uh, that we've seen in yields. So, you know, to sum up, I would say it's been a difficult environment for uh, tech stocks, but going forward, we still think there are some opportunities. You just have to take a more selective approach. Very good. Thanks so much, Laura. I mean, if we zoom in a little bit, you mentioned semiconductors. If you look at semis, the, the large techs, but also maybe the subscription economy where we've zoomed in a bit recently. What is our outlook here? Yeah, so first I would say we don't think this is the beginning of the end for tech investing. Uh, for growth companies, delivering on long-term earnings growth is much more important than the starting valuations, and we still expect uh, tech growth of around 20% this year. And looking over the next five years, as you can see on the slide, we expect a low to mid-teens annual growth rate for global tech earnings. So with this in mind, uh, we think there is an opportunity to start building up some strategic uh, long-term positions, you know, as some of these areas have uh, pulled back. So the first uh, is large-cap tech companies. Uh, these companies tend to have more established business models, more uh, reliable revenue visibility, um, so, you know, given that, we've seen that they've been more defensive than other tech companies during the recent correction. So that's one area to look. Um, the second one, you mentioned semiconductors. These tend to be more cyclically driven, uh, and we believe that pricing looks firm amid tight global supply, and at the same time, valuations also still look attractive. 
We also see opportunities in companies leverage to what we're calling the subscription economy. Uh, we use this term to refer to companies with internet-based subscription services, ranging from e-commerce to streaming to gaming. And these companies, we expect to see a steady revenue growth, solid cash flow generation, and even the capacity for margin improvement. Uh, we expect that the digital subscription market is going to be one of the fastest growing market segments globally uh, as we look ahead over the next few years. Um, and then finally, um, in addition to those opportunities, if you look on the next slide, um, I would also note that the recent sell-off in secular growth presents an opportunity to build strategic positions in some of our next big thing themes, uh, which include health tech, fintech, green tech, and 5G. We believe that the last decade was about investing in technology, but the next one is going to favor disruptors in industries undergoing digital transformation. So that includes financial services, healthcare, and energy and infrastructure um, in the case of green tech. Uh, we also believe that this digital revolution is going to require a next generation of IT infrastructure with 5G at its core. So while secular growth may have fallen out of favor in the current environment, we do believe that the recent volatility presents an opportunity to start building positions in some of these uh, select long-term themes. Thank you so much, Laura. I think that was very insightful. And with Laura, this also concludes uh, what is the public part of this uh, live stream. And we now turn it into uh, the uh, part for our clients that goes a bit more into details of concrete uh, investment ideas. So also those of you that are joining from LinkedIn, thanks so much for tuning in. We hope to have you with us for next week's uh, live stream. So have a lovely day. Good, and dear clients, um, so we're now going to zoom in a little bit on some of the investment recommendations that we have in store, particularly now for the second quarter and with a little bit of the backdrop of these key topics that we have already talked about. But before we get so far, it is important for me to say that obviously we are bound by uh, some country level restrictions and this is a global call, so I will try to get as quick as possible as, as we can. We do uh, recommend that you speak to your advisor and get uh, the more specific details of exactly what to be looking at for, for you. But with that, I'd like to turn it over to Kieran Ganes, who heads our investment uh, communication uh, teams. And he has been, uh, I think, very good at preparing what we describe as a bit of a checklist for investors as we're heading into the, to the second quarter. So uh, Kieran, with, with that, what is, what is on your list for the, for the quarter? Fantastic. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Mark. And uh, as, as you said, and as we've heard already from Fred, uh, David and Laura, lots of different dynamics taking place in the markets um, at the moment. And we thought it'd be a good opportunity to really take a step back and think about, well, what is the world that we're in? Uh, what is it characterized by? And how should investors position? What, what are the key questions they should be thinking about? So on this slide, you can see that we think essentially we're in a world in the second quarter, we're going to see very high levels of growth. Rates which remain low, as Fred said, a bit of debate about how, how long that goes on for, but for the near term, certainly rates are going to be low and volatility still elevated. It hasn't ever gone back to the levels we had before the pandemic. 
Uh, at the same time, we've seen investors shifting their attention away from the West and towards the East, given the strong performance uh, we've seen uh, from, from Asia through the pandemic uh, from an economic point of view. Um, as Laura said, people looking for what's the next big thing um, after the FANG stocks did so well over the past decade and that shift from traditional to sustainable. So this is kind of the world that we're in today. Um, and we distilled that world into six key questions that we think that investors need to be asking themselves uh, today to prepare their portfolios for the uh, post-pandemic world. The first question is on the next slide, and that's, are you positioned for reflation? You know, we heard that from David. We're going to be in an environment of very strong growth, rising inflation, and we think that's going to be a good environment for cyclical stocks. Earnings growth is going to be very high anyway. Global earnings growth of around 29% this year. But you can get even higher levels of earnings growth if you're focusing in on some of the more cyclical stocks, um, which uh, are, you know, poised to uh, regain some of the uh, ground that they lost throughout the pandemic. So select stocks within autos, aerospace, energy, materials, uh, looking at earnings growth closer to 50% for, for 2021. So you know, being in those cyclical spaces, we think, is still the place to be um, at the moment. From a size point of view, small caps we still think have room to outperform large caps. Typically, they do outperform in the year following a recession. We've seen some outperformance, but we think that has more scope to continue, particularly given that the valuations are much lower than they are for, for large caps. The next slide touches on a couple more areas within this reflation topic that we talk about. Um, so the first is on financials um, and materials, energy. If we're in an environment where there's some uncertainty about interest rates, uncertainty about whether yields are going to rise, then investors should want to be in sectors which can actually do well when yields rise rather than suffer. So we think that things like financials and energy are well positioned in that environment because they tend to perform well when uh, yields rise. You can see on the slide on the, on the chart on the right as well that energy stocks do have some scope to catch up to where oil prices um, have, have reached already. The second question we ask is whether investors have thought about the hunt for yield, which you can see on the next slide. Now, maybe you're sort of questioning, okay, well, one minute we're saying let's think about cyclical stocks, and now we're talking about yield. But we think that these are compatible themes. As Laura said, if we look in, in 2020, what we saw was actually a lot of the growth companies which typically don't pay dividends were the stocks that were outperforming. We think that this year, the more cyclical sectors, which tend to pay slightly higher dividend yields, um, have got potential to catch up. So if you're in a portfolio where you know, perhaps you're earning a negative real interest rate or even a negative nominal interest rate, as is the case in, in Europe and Switzerland, looking for ways to improve yield, then shifting towards some of those more cyclical sectors within your equity allocation you know, can be a way of uh, improving portfolio yields. And we can see that they did underperform uh, through, through 2020. A second area we've thought about is shifting some of your allocations away from uh, developed markets and towards uh, Asia, whether we look across cash rates, government bond rates, high yield credit rates, the, the yields you're able to get uh, within Asia um, are significantly higher um, than what's available in, in the US uh, and in Europe. And things like Asia high yield we think are a particularly attractive place to be at the moment. So certainly worth thinking about uh, if that's something that uh, individual investors haven't explored before. And thinking about different regions is not the only way of thinking about alternatives. And on the next slide, you can see some other ways that we think it's important for investors to think about broadening their opportunity set when they're looking for yield. So things like um, core real estate strategies, direct lending, 
using private markets to uh, enhance yields. Um, as you can see from the, the slide on the, the chart on the left there, um, some of the yields available in some of these areas tend to be higher um, than what is possible, certainly in cash, but also in, in public markets. The third question is on the on the next slide, and that's to really think about how how investors are using volatility um, to their advantage. Um, as I mentioned, we are in a much higher volatility environment, and that makes it more expensive to hedge equity portfolios explicitly. Um, but by thinking about this a bit more carefully, then maybe investors can find ways to use volatility to their advantage. So one way is to use uh, volatility to try and enhance yield um, by selling options to generate yield. Um, we think that that's an attractive strategy at the moment. And you know, historically, uh, the VIX index of volatility has tend to be quite correlated with where credit spreads have gone. At the moment, that's sort of broken down a bit, and we're still seeing still quite high volatility, even though credit spreads are low. So an attractive time to be thinking about using volatility to generate yield. Um, and also to think about using volatility to uh, generate uh, asymmetric payoff structures. Um, at the moment, we've got put options of quite expensive relative to where call options are. So this is a time when you can actually get, get generate income whilst getting exposure to markets on perhaps more favorable terms um, than taking direct exposure. Uh, the next slide shows that obviously hedge funds are, are quite well positioned um, in this environment as well. It, we're seeing dispersion is, is relatively high, so we're seeing big gaps opening up between um, stock valuations and stock performance, and we think that's a good time to be thinking about making sure you've got some uh, alpha generation potential um, within portfolios. Um, the fourth question is, is around seeking opportunity in Asia, and as I mentioned in my introduction, we've seen you know, through the pandemic that the, uh, the Asian economies, and particularly North Asia, um, have outperformed what we've seen in the, in the developed markets thanks to uh, quite proactive management of the, uh, of the pandemic. Um, and at the same time, we've seen very high levels of IPO activity um, in China, which has meant that its equity markets are, are really growing in size. Uh, and if, if uh, you know, we were to count all of the uh, equity markets that operate within China, this would now be the second biggest equity market in the world by um, market capitalization. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge that uh, you know, many investors, particularly in the, in the developed markets, you know, tend not to uh, pay so much attention to China just because of the, the high level of growth that we've seen there um, has meant that maybe it's been neglected in, in portfolio dis construction discussions in the past. Um, but as you can see on the next slide, we think that this is a, a good time um, tactically to be uh, thinking about adding allocations in, in, in Asia. We've got very strong levels of earnings growth um, that we expect, and we, think we expect the region to be um, at the home of many of the key trends that uh, Laura was talking about earlier that are really going to shape the next decade. So you know, something which is becoming more important adds value from a strategic perspective to add to portfolio diversification, but we also think a good tactical time to be uh, adding, uh, adding allocations to, to Asia. Um, the fifth question is around uh, positioning for structural growth. And again, Laura mentioned um, about how this could be a good time to be thinking about adding strategic exposure. I just want to highlight on this slide a very interesting study that was uh, put forward, I think, by the University of Arizona um, last year, um, which showed that if you look back over the past 30 years, all of the wealth that was generated in the global stock market, 90% of it came from just 1% of companies. So the importance of having some exposure 
being diversified across global stocks and sectors, of course, but having some exposure to those companies which are really going to generate the growth um, for the next decade is absolutely crucial. So if we've got a time now when we've got some volatility in some of these uh, growth names, um, if there, there are areas where we think we can have high levels of growth. This is a good time to be thinking about adding into those areas. So, you know, we talked about next big thing. We talked about fintech, green tech, 5G, uh, digital subscriptions. You know, these are areas where we think uh, investors can get uh, exposure to structural growth. And the next slide shows that thinking beyond public markets as well is, is getting more important. Um, we know that uh, companies are tending to stay private for longer um, before, they, they, uh, before they list onto public markets. So particularly if you're looking for exposure to growth, then building in some private allocations as well um, can help make sure that, uh, that investors are doing that in a diversified way. And then for the sixth question is, is to really review, is, is your portfolio sustainable? Um, 2020 was a big year for global environmental policy. We saw carbon neutral pledges um, in, in Europe, in Japan, China. We saw the U.S. rejoining the Paris Agreement earlier this year. You can see from the chart on the left, we've had a huge increase in the, number, in the uh, equity flows that are going into environmental, social and governance, uh, uh, thematics and, and sustainability themed ETFs, um, and that's really driven very strong performance for, for the uh, clean energy sector, among other uh, uh, sustainable related themes. And we think that that trend is going to continue. We think people are going to continue to be looking into, uh, into ESG and into sustainability. Um, but we think it is important at the moment to be, yes, positioning that way, but also thinking about both being selective, you know, looking in within those companies which are you know, really going to be generating sustainable profits um, over the course of the next decade, and, but also thinking beyond just environmental stocks. You know, I think when people think sustainable, they often think about the environment and green tech, um, but also to think into uh, social and governance factors as well, which we also think have got scope to outperform. As you can see on the next slide, um, we could, we've seen sustained outperformance, for example, from companies which have uh, shown leadership in, in gender equality. We think those kinds of trends uh, you know, are also ways that investors can make their portfolios more sustainable, but also generate more sustainable long-term performance. Uh, the next slide is just the, the summary of the key questions to think about. So uh, just to recap very briefly, you know, are you positioned for reflation? Have you thought about the hunt for yield? Are you using volatility to invest and protect? Are you seeking opportunity in Asia? Are you positioned for structural growth? And is your portfolio sustainable? And we think these are really the key questions that investors need to be asking themselves um, as we enter the second quarter. Thank you so much, Kieran. I think that was a phenomenal way of trying to round up what are some of the concrete actions that we are thinking about with our clients to position portfolio for success over the, the second quarter. So just also from what we heard from the different speakers, it certainly is a, a couple of quarters coming ahead of us now with significant pickup in growth, inflation, the stimulus, there's further stimulus on the, on the horizon, and all of this leads into a lot of these reflationary type trades, which you will potentially recognize both in some of your portfolios with UBS, but also as the things that we keep uh, recommending. I recognize that we have gone a bit over the half hour that we were originally scheduled. So for those of you that have other things to do, then obviously feel very free to, 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 to dial out. But we also have been getting a couple of questions. So for those of you that are interested, we'll be running a few minutes longer just to, to try to tackle a, a few of them. And, and the one that I got that I thought was quite interesting 
I'll put to, to Fred here. There was, a, there was a question coming in that relates a bit to the question around productivity, uh, inflation, and, and so forth. And basically here the, the, the client is, is asking that the Phillips curve was, was called uh, debt for, for a while now, so this relationship between, uh, I guess, employment and, and inflation. But is there a way where rising productivity threat could see a bit of a dampening impact on uh, on inflation. So I think that's, that, that's an interesting one to, uh, for you to give a go at. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Mark. So, so the productivity puzzle, I think it's been called academically, has been with us for a number of years. And I sort of touched on this earlier when I talked about the interest rate outlook. So uh, the declining productivity that we've seen in developed markets uh, has been the main sort of driver of lower interest rates and inflation undershooting central bank targets. So, so now going forward, the big question is, with all this stimulus, this unprecedented stimulus that we're seeing, does that have the potential to lift productivity? Uh, the short answer to that question is, I think at this stage, a lot of the stimulus we've seen has been directed to uh, supporting income and filling holes in, 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 of income in economies. If we go into the next stage of the recovery, and we're already starting to see uh, this in the United States, where talk around infrastructure spending programs are being discussed, then I think ultimately that has the potential to lift productivity, to address secular stagnation, flat Phillips curves, savings investments imbalance. So things like infrastructure and investment can lift productivity, can lift potential growth, and I think can lift interest rates and uh, inflation. So we're not there yet. As I said, we're still in a lower for longer regime. But as this discussion around infrastructure and investing, not just in the United States, but in other parts of the world, gathers speed, I think that will be uh, critical in terms of this productivity question. Thanks so much, Fred. Then we have another question coming in here on dollar Swiss franc, what is your expectations? And obviously it leans up against, uh, against some of this US dollar strength we have seen most recently, and maybe I, I can take uh, this one. So we have seen a bit of US dollar strength on the back of uh, these rise in yields, and it does remind us a little bit of this environment that we've been in over the last couple of years or before the pandemic hit uh, all of us in this environment where U.S. growth exceptionalism, as it was kind of called, so, so in terms of developed markets, at least the more significant growth rates were coming from the U.S. and in combination with higher yields, it basically led the, the U.S. dollar stronger. We kind of left that environment with, with COVID, with both the yield differential kind of uh, moving away, but we're seeing a little bit of a comeback of that argumentation along with stronger U.S. growth rates. But I think what we differentiate, and, and just to conclude, we continue to see U.S. dollar go weaker on the back of the Fed that is kind of cementing the, the short end of the curve uh, at around zero, even if we're going to see kind of a pickup in growth and inflation. So we don't think it's kind of a traditional carry environment that we're going to see. And while we're going to see a lot of growth in the U.S., it's really by, been driven by an increase in deficits from these big stimulus packages. So we don't think that this is the turn of the tide of the U.S. dollar, even if there could be now a short-term period where, where the dollar is not seeing the, the degree of weakness we've seen recently. So specifically on dollar Swiss franc, we're forecasting 87 over the next 3, 6, and, and 12 months. 
that leads to another question that, that we've been, been getting here on the list, which I think is an interesting one, maybe over to you, David, on U.S. deficits and the potential for taxes. So is rising taxes on the back of these increasing deficits a concern to equity investors that we should have on our, our radar? Yeah, thanks, Mark. Um, I, I would say the short answer is is we don't think it's going to substantially derail the, the bull market. So on our on our numbers, if if the corporate rate goes up to around 28 percent, which is what Biden had proposed in the campaign, that that would be that would be a hit to earnings of about eight percent. Um, which is not insubstantial, but also bear in mind that the economy is is going to be growing pretty rapidly over the next 24 months. And the soonest that this would probably be be implemented would be for calendar year 2022. The other important point here is that getting all the way up to 28 percent is probably a heavy lift. There there are certainly are some conservative Democrats that uh, would not be in favor of raising corporate rates to that level. And and we think something in the in the mid 20s is a little bit more realistic. So if if it goes to the mid 20s, that would be about a four uh, percent drag on on earnings growth next year. That's already incorporated in our numbers. Uh, and and despite that drag, we're still looking for close to 13 percent earnings growth for next year. Just reflect you know get it, the reflection uh, of that. Pretty strong growth is just the economy it should be continue could, should continue to be quite quite strong next year. So, look, it's something we're going to watch closely. Um, but at, at if 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 corporate rates don't go up to that 28 percent, I think it's reasonable. The other thing I would just point out, I have one more comment on this: capital gains also don't tend to have a, a big correlation with market returns. That, that's probably another question that people are thinking about. Um, so. I think the biggest variable is going to be on the corporate side. And again, what's realistic on that on that front is probably not too much of a headwind for, for U.S. equities. Thanks so much, David. Uh, we're going to have a very, very final question here, which is around sustainability. And I'm going to put it over to you, Laura. So this was kind of the the, the number six of, of Kieran's checklist for, for the second quarter. And you were talking about some of these sustainability trends as well. But do we have some investment themes that are particularly interesting at this point in time for some of our global investors around sustainability? Sure, Mark. It's a great question. And uh, Karen already touched on one of the most prominent ones, which is diversity and equality. We're seeing a lot of investor interest in this topic. Um, and importantly, you know, not just with a values-based motivation, but also in the sense that um, studies that we've looked at show that there is a positive relationship between uh, greater diversity within companies um, and profitability. So um, that, I would say, is definitely at the top of the list in terms of themes that are in focus um, and, you know, that also saw an additional uh, boost of interest coming out of, out of the pandemic. We know the pandemic disproportionately impacted um, certain groups, uh, especially those that are, you know, lower income or, you know, at a disadvantage. So um, that's one that I would mention. The other uh, that we've seen interest in is what we call the food revolution. Um, again, here with the pandemic, we saw a lot of disruption to our food supply chain. We saw increased food waste. Um, so looking forward, we see a lot of opportunities to actually improve uh, the sustainability of our food chain. And this is going to be really important as the population grows and as the middle class increases, we're seeing an appetite for more resource intensive food like meat. So some of the areas 
that represent both a solution and an investment opportunity uh, include, for example, uh, technologies that are aiding um, in the shift to pre precision agriculture. So things like satellites and drones that can be used to monitor crop uh, conditions. Also, predictive analytics capabilities can be used to better forecast weather patterns. So all of this is aimed around improving the efficiency of farming, improving yields, and reducing waste. Another really interesting opportunity is plant-based meat. Uh, a plant-based burger, for example, uses 90% water, 90% less land, and produces 90% less CO2 emissions, uh, roughly than a traditional so given these environmental benefits, we think there'll be a lot of growth um, in this market. We're forecasting around a 28% annual growth rate uh, over the next decade. So there's a lot of exciting opportunities here that, that uh, we can pursue to actually you know, improve the sustainability um, and security of our food chain going forward. So, so that's just two examples, but I'm certainly seeing a lot more interest around these sustainable themes, especially after the events of last year. Thanks so much, Laura, and thanks, Laura, for joining, as well as Fred, David, and Kieran, and for all of you, dear clients and colleagues, thanks a lot for having tuned in as well to this week's uh, live stream. We look forward to hosting uh, another one uh, next week. Have a great day, everybody. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.